So uh, not only is this a time of pastoral transition, but uh, it's a transition between seasons in the uh, liturgical calendar of the Christian year. Uh, We had been looking at passages in the prophet Isaiah from November through December, and that was the season of Advent. Now, Advent begins, actually, it begins the church calendar, even though it starts in November of our calendar, and there we get notes of expectation, anticipation, as we await the arrival of God. And then on Christmas Day, December 25th, we celebrated the incarnation of God in Christ. So the arrival of God in or as the baby Jesus. But in the Christian tradition, uh, Christmas isn't just a one-day celebration. It actually persists for 12 days, the 12 days of Christmas. And so sometimes Christian families do certain uh, rituals and readings in the home for 12 days. And so that would stretch from December 25th up through January 5th. January 6th, this past Friday, is one of the oldest holidays in the history of the church, along with Easter and Christmas. And that holiday is called Epiphany. Epiphany commemorates this scene, which is only included in the Gospel of Matthew, where the baby Jesus is visited by these magi, or wise men. The Magi are thought to represent, in the early chapters of the gospel, to represent non-Israelites, or the Gentiles. And so we just heard in Isaiah 42, Israel's call to be a light to the Gentiles. Epiphany causes us to remember the first appearance of Christ to the Gentiles. And now, like Christmas, which extends a little bit, I guess more like Advent, Epiphany becomes a season in itself. And so for the next seven weeks, uh, we are not going to be looking at passages in Isaiah, but rather we are going to be looking at passages in the Gospels, uh, primarily the Gospel of Matthew. And so from uh, this episode of appearing to the the Magi, we're going to journey with Jesus through his ministry his teaching, and his miracles as we walk toward the season of Lent and then Easter together. So that's where we are. Um, The readings we heard this morning come first from Psalm 29, and then from Isaiah 42, and then Acts chapter 10. Uh, In Psalm 29, we hear about the power and majesty of God's voice, his voice. In Isaiah 42, we read about the servant of the Lord. This is the first of several of the servant songs in Isaiah. The servant of the Lord seems the Messiah who would be filled with God's Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 10, we read about the Apostle Peter going into the house of Cornelius, a Gentile, preaching the gospel, and then receiving the Holy Spirit. Our fourth and final reading then this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. And I'd invite you all to turn there at this time. Matthew 3, and I'm going to be starting at verse 13 in the ESV. The Gospel according to Matthew 3, 13, As you are able, friends, would you stand for the reading of God's word? 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You may be seated. Now there are so many directions uh, I could go with this. As I read the commentaries and prepared for this sermon, it was suggested that John the Baptist represents kind of more independent, radical prophet, sort of like a parachurch organization, whereas Jesus, connected to the synagogues and Judaism, is perhaps connected to the church. I read about how baptism here uh, precedes Jesus' ministry, and so baptism can be thought of as ordination for ministry and can serve as an example for Christians today. Jesus here uh, identifies with sinful Israel, and so baptism could also be framed as a form of atonement. Now, those are all very valuable directions to go, and I would encourage you in your own time to go in those directions, but this morning, uh, my focus is going to be a little different. This morning, I want to focus on how Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism presents Jesus as the new Israel. Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, I think, clearly presents Jesus as the new Israel. And we're going to unpack that. Toward this end, what I want to do is look at the episodes leading up to our text and the episode or two which come after. But I want to pay particular attention to the Old Testament texts that are evoked by these passages. My hope in all of this is that we will see or hear exactly what Matthew wants us to see or hear. Namely, that in Jesus, we see the embodiment of a new people of God. So that is my plan for this morning, uh, but before we get any further, let's take a moment to, to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for this season of Epiphany, for this wonderful story that Matthew has included for us, in which the baby Jesus appears to these non-Israelites like us. Thank you, Lord, for including us Gentiles in your kingdom plan, and I pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles open to Matthew 3, um, I'd ask you to just flip the page, I guess to the left, backwards, a few 
flips to get to the middle of Matthew chapter 2. Luckily, we actually heard uh, portions of this in our reading from last week, in our lectionary reading from Matthew 2. And I'd like to first look at this section under the heading, The Flight to Egypt, in your ESV Bibles. Right above that, it's Matthew 2, uh, verses 7 through 12, we read the account of the Magi coming to Jesus. And it says that in verse 11, they went into the house, they saw the child, they fell down and worshipped him. Opening their treasures, they offered him gifts such as gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But then in verse 12, it says that they were warned in a dream not to return to the land of King Herod. So they departed to their own country by another way. Then we get this story, verses uh, 13 through 15 in Matthew 2. And friends, this is the only occurrence of this story, the the Holy Family going to Egypt, uh, the only occurrence in all the Gospels. No other Gospel writer includes this story, okay? It's unique to Matthew's Gospel. Now, not only did the Magi receive a warning not to return to Herod, it says that an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and and told him to flee to Egypt with his family because Herod is searching for the child trying to destroy him. So the family went by night and departed south to Egypt. And then it says, at the end of verse 15, this was to fulfill... Remember that word, fulfill, a couple weeks ago? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. This is Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. So if we had time, I would turn to Hosea 11. This is a quote of Hosea 11.1. And let me add, too, that when New Testament writers would cite the Old Testament, the readers of these texts, they they didn't work with verse references. Um, They were reading large swaths of material on scrolls with no no verses, and many times they would memorize stories as a whole or contexts. So for the original readers, this would have been like a hyperlink, connecting them to the wider context, which is Hosea 11, 1 through 10. Now, if you read Hosea 11... 1 through 10, you'll see tender, loving imagery in which God speaks about Israel as his child. Ephraim, my son, whom I love. And he he recalls the history of Israel being enslaved in Egypt and how the Lord, through Moses, liberates them from Egypt and brings them into the promised land. Hosea is writing to Israelites who were about to be taken captive by the Assyrians. And so this is a section reminding the Israelites of how God had tenderly delivered Israel from Egypt, encouraging them in this other context of exile and enslavement to Assyria. But if you read this wider passage, you'll see that Israel is spoken of as God's son, his beloved son his child. And all throughout, there are notes of hope that this this child would be called out of exile. So the Holy Family here is compared with Israel 
And their stay in Egypt is compared with Israel's time in Egypt in Exodus. If you move to the next section then, we'll get more connections with that story. This is under the heading, Herod Kills the Children. Quite a lovely heading in the ESV, right? Here we have King Herod, who is caught wind that this ruler, this potential king of the Jews, had been born, and he, he tries to search for the child to kill him. So he sent, it says in verse 16, and killed all the male children in Bethlehem who were two years old or under. Let me just say, friends, the same exact thing happens in Exodus chapter 1. Pharaoh is worried that the people of Israel would multiply and take over, and he orders that all the male Hebrew children be killed, and somehow Moses makes it through. So all around Palestine, uh, these, these babies, these boys were being killed, and in verse 17 it says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by another prophet. Jeremiah, in this case, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Again, if you go back to that section, this is Jeremiah 31, uh, 15 through 20. Jeremiah is writing uh, not about Israel's exile in Egypt, not so much about their exile to Assyria, but their exile in Babylon. It's as though Rachel, who is the wife of Jacob, whose name is Israel, Rachel is this symbolic mother of Israel, and she's weeping because her children had been taken from her. So Israel's exile to Babylon is portrayed uh, as a mother losing her sons. But again, if you read that whole text, you'll see notes of hope. About, about God calling Rachel's children back so that her weeping would turn to cries of joy. This is similar to the passage in Hosea, where Israel is spoken of as God's child. And, and their exile is compared with the Holy Family's exile, you could say, in Egypt. Now then, we're almost at our text, we get this section about the return to Nazareth. So it turns out that Herod dies, and Joseph is, is told that he is, he is now safe to return to Nazareth. But in verse 22, it says he was afraid to go. Sorry, he's told to return to the heartland of Israel, Judah, but he's afraid to go there. So instead of this, this heartland of, of Israel being the, the southern kingdom of Judea, he goes to the district of Galilee. So friends, we have the Holy Family, like Israel, being in Egypt, in a kind of exile, and then they journey up north, and, and they come close to the heart of the promised land as though they're looking into it. Then we get language about John the Baptist preparing the way and then our text in Matthew 3, verse 13 through 17. So starting in verse 13, I want you to imagine all of these connections swirling together. The people Israel being in exile, returning close to the land. And then it says, Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. 
Friends, where in the Old Testament do we hear about the Jordan River? There there are a couple episodes that feature the Jordan, but the most significant for our purposes is the beginning of the book of Joshua. Joshua's name in Hebrew is Yehoshua. In Greek, Joshua's name is Jesus. It's Jesus. There's no reason why in our English Bibles it it isn't the book of Jesus. The prophet who would come after Moses, who would bring the Israelites into the land, it's Jesus, it's Yeshua. The first thing Joshua does after he takes the mantle from Moses is he crosses the Jordan. This passage kind of birth, a new birth through water, from death to life, exile to return, from slavery to freedom. It is no accident that Matthew portrays this entire story this way, as the holy family in exile in Egypt, coming close to the land of promise, and then Jesus crossing the Jordan, as it were. In verses 14 through 15, John the Baptist, he protests to this, understandably. Um, John thought he was administering a baptism for, uh, toward repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, comes to him. And so, of course, he doesn't want to baptize him. But Jesus answers him in verse 15 and says, Permit me to do this. It's the same verb in that story with the children. Permit the children to come. Let let this happen, please. John, allow this to happen because this is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The verb fulfill in Matthew's gospel almost always refers to the fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is intimately aware of the story of Israel, of their existence for 400 years in Egypt, their exile in Assyria and in Babylon, then the Lord pulling them through the waters of the Red Sea, through the waters of the Jordan into the promised land. Jesus knows all this, and he says, John, you got to let me do this, man you got to let me fulfill the history of Israel and myself. So he consents. And in verse 16, it says that when Jesus was baptized, a few things happen. It says the heavens were opened to him. The, The Spirit of God descends, and it takes the form of a dove. And rests on him. Let me just take each of these in turn before we get to verse 17. If you open the prophet Ezekiel, you'll see the beginning of his vision. And Ezekiel is exiled in Babylon. He's writing about new creation, new covenant, new temple. The beginning of his vision, it says, the heavens were opened. And I saw all these things. If you go back even further to Genesis, a story we all know, Noah and his ark, 
God wanted to recreate the world because of the evil of human beings. So it says the heavens were opened and it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. New creation. To read that the heavens were opened for someone who's familiar with the Old Testament would have signified revelation and and new action on the part of God. It then says that the Spirit of God descended. We, We read about the Spirit of God in the beginning, hovering over the face of the waters, creation. In Isaiah, we we hear time and again, the Spirit will rest on my servant, on this this descendant of David, the Messiah. And and the Spirit is not violently possessing Jesus like it would with Samson or Saul, but it's, it's resting upon him. And lastly, we get this mention of the word dove, which in Hebrew is the word Jonah. In case you didn't know, Yonah or dove. This only occurs a few times in the Old Testament, which makes its few occurrences so important. And one text in which it occurs is that story of Noah. When the rains had stopped, and Noah is wondering if it's safe to go on land, and he sends forth a dove. And the dove comes back with nothing, it comes back with a leaf. And then it doesn't come back. The dove, friends, is a symbol of new creation. There are so many notes in this one verse that tell us that what Jesus is doing is is creating something anew. Lastly, in verse 17, behold, again, a voice from the torn open heavens says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This reaches into and quotes parts of Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. And if anyone was in doubt at this point as to who this Jesus really was, here God himself says, this, this is my son, the Messiah, the chosen one. After all this, friends, as if we needed more, uh, Jesus goes to the wilderness where he is without food for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, Noah on the ark is there for 40 days and 40 nights while it rained. Moses on Mount Sinai, he's there for 40 days, 40 nights. Israel is in the wilderness for 40 years, not to mention in Egypt for 400. Just like these figures, Jesus after his baptism, experiences a time of testing, and then all the Gospels agree on this order, then he starts his ministry. So in Matthew's account, we have this flight to Egypt, kind of exile. We have the Holy Family's return to a place near the heartland of Israel, and then we get a Jordan River crossing. I think it is clear, friends, that Matthew's Jesus, his portrayal of Jesus here, begins to rewrite the history of ancient Israel. What this means is that in the person of Christ, God 
has embodied what he wanted his people to be all along. In the person of Christ, God participates in Israel's story. In the the very rites which define who they are. God himself crosses the Jordan. this, This boundary marker between death and life. And in so doing, he, he changes this ritual act, baptism by water for repentance, into baptism by spirit into new life, new creation. In all of this, Jesus, the firstborn of the new creation, opens up for us a new way to live. He has begun to rewrite human history, and he beckons us, beckons us to come and join him. Do you ever feel like your Christian life, beliefs or practices, like they're insignificant or unimportant in the grand scheme of things? Friends, your Christian life is rewriting the history of God's people for all the world to see. That means that every little prayer, every act of love, every small effort toward renewal, reconciliation, is a published revision of human history. I'm serious. So this morning, I want to encourage you Take heart. Our small, modest church can join with God in refashioning the world as we know it. It can. Let me close with this. The baptism of Jesus is the first stage in what I would call the the transfiguration of Israel's history. So with Christ as our head, as our model today, let us rewrite history through our lives. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this overwhelmingly rich text that orients us to this season of epiphany, a time where we journey with Jesus through his ministry and where we identify his efforts with our own. Lord, we are your body here on earth today, and what we are doing is nothing short of building the kingdom of God. I pray that you would inspire us this week, this year, that you would inspire us to see that our our little efforts are part of something huge. Use us.